0: Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable, board game content across the industry. I am your host, James Staley, and in this episode we are welcoming back Richard McCray, owner of Analog Game Studios. Analog Game Studios works with developers around the world to bring new and exciting games to the game table. Today, We're going to talk about their newest title on Kickstarter, Taurus. Richard, welcome back to The Binge, my friend. How are you doing?
1: Hey, thanks, James. It is really great to be back, and thank you for having me.
0: It is always awesome to have you on here. Uh, As uh, many people know, uh, I look to you as a a mentor. You've helped me a lot when I was cutting my teeth in this industry. Uh, You're a wealth of knowledge. You're very kind with your time if anybody has questions. And uh, just off the top, I just want to thank you for that. Uh, I also want to thank you for a donation that you just did. Uh, we actually have our 100th episode coming up on June 14th, 100 episodes of the podcast. I can't believe that we've almost hit 100 episodes in under a year. Richard was very, very kind on behalf of Analog Game Studios to donate a copy of Cartasora, which is their last Kickstarter that, uh, that funded. And, uh, so that giveaway is actually happening right now. So if someone goes to our Instagram page, board game, binge podcast. That's board game, binge podcast. You'll see in there is simply, uh, I think you have to tag like three friends. Uh, you follow us, you follow analog game studios, get entered into the draw. We're gonna do this every single day. We're adding another game. We've got fourteen different companies that have been very generous, like Richard, with their uh, with their donations, and we got a lot of stuff, uh, exciting stuff coming up over the next uh, week and a bit. So stay tuned for that. Richard, you got this new game called Taurus. Um, I've been following this for quite some time under another name, uh, Ctor, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but how did you? Kind of meet up with, um, I guess Doctor Braun is the is the individual that uh, invented this, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, a mutual friend introduced us, um, and uh, the fellow actually worked with Snakes and Lattes, and said, "Hey, this uh, this game designer has this interesting game." And I had only done uh, Centrics and Gnomes of Midnight by that point. I was yeah. working; I had some others in the pipeline, so I met with him, and it was a very intriguing game.
0: And this was like a few years, because I remember you talking about this a few years. You've been working on this for a while, have you not?
1: Yeah. I mean, any game that we do has about a two year pipeline development yeah. period. So, yeah,
0: that's cool. So, Dr. Braun, um, so tell me about this, this gentleman. So he's a Russian scientist, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He was a professor at uh, St. Petersburg at the university, uh, a mathematician, a really You know, brainy, brilliant guy. Yeah. Um, His job there was developing very uh, sophisticated algorithms for kind of pretty much anything. And um, he was teaching mathematics, mathematical theory to biology students, but he was having a hard time getting across his very theoretical environment to biology students who are very grounded in the practical and sort of organisms impacting on each other, that kind of thing. So he needed a teaching tool. Um, And in particular, there was something called boundary conditions in algorithms that you have to have a situation where you can show uh, the interaction between different, I guess, organisms or, uh, you know, um, biology interactions uh, and, and when you come to an edge, the world stops, so that's no good. You need a 3D kind of ish environment, but not yeah. a 3D environment in the sense of things stacked on top of each other. So his kind of donut shape, the torus, mm. uh, solved that problem and he was able to use the system to, uh, to teach mathematical theory to biology students. So when you
0: say like uh, 3D, but in like a 2D space, uh, do you mean like kind of when you go off the edge, you kind of wrap around almost like Pac-Man and come in on the other side of the board? Is that kind of the general idea?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Precisely. Like in the um, diagrams that you can actually see in some places online uh, and on a Kickstarter page, imagine you've got a donut. Yeah. Chop the donut in half and then you unfurl it into a tube. Mm -hmm. And then you chop that tube in half, as it were, and you unfurl it into that flat board. The video described or shows that exactly. Uh, But that's the 3D nature of it. So you can move around on the axis. And as you Mm -hmm. said, like Pac-Man, you come off the board, but you show up on the other side.
0: So and then so he created this game. He called it C Taurus. So that stands again for?
1: Cellular Taurus. Yeah.
0: So this is like a biological concept. And so what, what, what year did he create this? I get the census has been around for a while. Like, is this something that's been going for a few decades or.
1: A little over 30 years ago, he came up with this. Wow.
0: And then this was with his different students, I guess they, um, you know, they, they would play it and. At what point did he see this as not just a teaching tool, but actually turn into something, literally it became a game, right? A game that then could be sold around the world and and for other people to enjoy beyond his students. How did that transition happen?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, any university environment, there's gaming groups, there's people who like to play games, right? And especially super smart people want to play really difficult games. In Russia, chess is huge. Yeah, but even Go is pretty uh, pretty big as a, as a abstract strategy game. There were people who took this thing on and decided this is kind of cool and it's also very challenging uh, to play. So he developed uh, these rules that allow you now to play through and try to dominate the board, take over the board, and own it, as it were, but by flipping your opponent's pieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very successful. It led to sea um, tour groups that would play this game. Um, there was even a newsletter, a blog of some sort that was written up by you know who was winning and who was on kind of the the the, the champion, like leaderboard and or... you know, yeah. Um, and eventually, even a, a an international championships devo- championship rather, developed out of it. So he published the game, and uh, the game actually originally then sold over hundred thousand copies.
0: Hundred thousand copies. So, and, and when did he do that? Like, was that like twenty well, years ago, or was that more recently? Or when did uh, he?
1: No, pretty shortly after he had uh, the, uh, invented it back thirty years ago. Yeah. Within a few years after that is when he first uh, did. Publish it, but in Russia, right? Yeah. So this is the reboot, the uh, the the recreation of it, but for USA and Canada.
0: So did he eventually like immigrate to Canada or to the US, or is he still like how do how are you connected with him now?
1: Yeah, no, he lives in Toronto. He's a just another resident like you and me here and in did,
0: Canada. Is he teaching here, or what? Is he or has he kind of gone the game road, or what's kind of what's? I know
1: his, he's in the uh, media space, so. Uh, um Russian community uh broadcasting actually
0: okay yeah I gotta say it was uh especially with like Netflix shows right now like the Queen's Gambit right which is super super popular I think it's inspired a lot of people to pick chess back up certainly I think it's inspired a lot of women to uh to explore uh chess as well and you know I you know it it couldn't be more timely I, I would say to have an abstract game like this uh come to market when there seems to be um this the, this interest right of kind of getting back into more strategic type of you know thinky kind of uh kind of games um would did that did that play into it at all your decision to launch this now the the fact that we're seeing more of that kind of in in the media
1: um, my decision to to launch it came actually before Queen's Gambit, mm. but it definitely was related to my love of abstract games. Yeah, uh, my you know my preference really for that genre of games had a lot to do with my interest in it. Um, at first, when we were developing it, I mean, we, we did try out various themes, like having you know one side be white blood cells fighting off uh, evil viruses and, you know you're flipping them and seeing who's going to win the virus or the that would be timely cells, <laughs> which would have been crazy had we gone through with that in this you know pandemic environment cuz it was,
0: <laughs> yeah see tour the not. covid edition yeah exactly yeah.
1: But now we decided to stay pure play abstract. We thought that is better for this game and it makes it more serious game because it's a challenging game. It's a brainy kind of game, right? Yeah. So to then make it childlike or childish with cartoony stuff and it didn't fit very well. So we dumped that idea. So I just moved over to the
0: actual Kickstarter page. And uh, the one thing that kind of hits me is the, the graphics, right? And I, and I mean, we can see the background behind you, a little bit of the the ring uh, from that, uh, Again, yeah. a recent TV show where they have kind of like the clouds with uh, w- with the circle and uh, got this Stargate. kind of yeah heavenly, yeah exactly I like, like a Stargate. Um, mm-hmm. The decision to change uh, the fundamental look, uh, what w- was that more to kind of a North Americanize it or?
1: Yeah, exactly. It was very plain in its original design. yeah, and functional for sure. but we decided that we wanted something a little jazzier, something a little bit more. Art creative. And that uh, has a lot to do with the fact that we go uh, with very unique or very uh, standout type art in all our games here at long Game Studios.
0: Now, and I noticed like you've moved to like some like past, like, the board looks beautiful. I mean, with the pastels and so forth. Um, now, I noticed that you kind of have your core for people that are listening. I'll try to explain what the people are watching or seeing. Um, but you have kind of the core center of the board, which is kind of like a traditional kind of Of a better word, checkerboard grid, but then you've got these kind of colored bands that go kind of the outer two borders uh, around the board. What's the significance of that? I was trying to kind of get my head around that when I was you know digging into the game.
1: Okay. Very simply, when you look at the board and actually, if you want to show it,
0: yeah, it's showing right now. Yeah.
1: Or OK, I've got a version of it, but I don't know if it will show up. No, it doesn't. Um, what's going on is the, the the board is actually the portion of those, those squares that are within the white band. Yep. So this outer um, group of uh, squares are just marker squares. They're just there to position a play piece so that it marks the fact that it's on both sides. It's on the board, on the other side of the board, but then mm-hmm. beware because it's also gonna have an impact on the left or right side of the board as a case may mm. be. So the outside rim, just marking tokens to mark off that uh, that's the transition point. And
0: so when I was um, looking at kind of how, how you play, the, the core mechanic, I guess, is you're surrounding your player's uh, rings. Uh, with, I guess, five or more rings that surround it, then you can then flip the ring over and I guess it then becomes part of your color. Um, you know, a bit of a, like an Othello or reversi kind of you know, flip. Um, but it's, it's a lot more complicated than that, right? So you've got uh, not just kind of getting on either other side of that, uh, of that player piece, but you're actually having to surround the player piece. And then I was reading somewhere that um, you can bring a piece in from another side of the board. Like, how does that work?
1: Um, well, that is the nature of uh, this torus, this donut shape, is that yeah. it's continu- you're going con- around continuously, and you can move uh, your pieces. There are movement operations,
0: So yeah.
1: unlike the reversi or the Othello, um, there's a lot more to it than just mm-hmm. surrounding your piece by placing a piece. Yes, that's important, and if you're Uh, five of your colors touches a square that uh, your opponent is on that's when you flip which is hard to do actually it's it's tricky you're also laying two pieces at the time Mm. and after laying two if you do flip good but you can also now move two pieces and when you move them that can cause a flip and then there's other two migration modes where you can say you have a a group of three pieces yeah. in a row you can move them left or right uh, along their axis for instance so and i noticed
0: and, and, and again the screen you can't see it but the, the people at home can see this is that the um it, it appears that you can move like a group like so can you move like a group of colors so if you have like say four together you can move that whole block of four you can you can shift around the board
1: yeah that's the migration operation exactly
0: as a migrate or place or can you do both on the same turn
1: well, in two-player mode, you're going to be doing both, if yeah. you wish. You don't have to migrate, but if you wish, you can. In uh, solo mode, one operation at a time. So you're going back and forth in solo mode.
0: Gotcha. So I'm going to um, just you know take this off the, uh, uh, the screen that people are looking at at home. Uh, we just got to the solo mode. And this makes my brain hurt when I was <laughs> watching the videos. Explain how this solo mode works. It's like a right brain versus a left. Like you're actually playing against yourself, right? Is that is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um, What you're doing is you're playing your uh, right intuitive brain. Yeah. Against your left logical brain. Uh, There's a lovely video in the review section in which um, it's Vince of Toronto Gamers does a great job uh, Mm -hmm. about promoting this idea that, you know, yeah, board games, uh, we all think of them as you need to apply logical reasoning, logical decision-making. But he feels that, no, it's a fallacy. That's not really what actually happens. Usually we make an instant decision. We decide, you know, I wanna go after that green square because I don't know, I like green, or I think that this is gonna be a better position for my play pieces. And so that emotional intelligence and emotional decision-making is far more prevalent. So Vince also then uh, points out the fact about uh, the solo mode uh, version of this game that you can actually sharpen and train and exercise and improve your intuitive by playing the solo mode. And the the mechanics for how it works is very simple. You're gonna be using a sand timer every time you're playing, right? So mm-hmm. in two-player mode, use two 30-second sand timers because you don't want analysis paralysis taken over and ruining yeah. the game, right? It's just it's. I, in play testing, we found that the, certain people have that issue, and so we had to introduce the sand timer. But the, there's one sand timer that's 10 seconds. So when you play yourself. playing the 30 second and the 10 second sand timer okay so you'll pick the 30 second sand timer save for the yellow color and we've identified in this case the red one for uh you know as as the blue one in solo mode 10 seconds so you've got to make a decision much faster in uh, in in the 10 second sand timer case that's your intuitive at work that's your right brain going Well, crap, I got 10 seconds. I got to make a move and you make it and, you know, whatever it is, it might be a bad one. It might be a good one, but uh, your logical then comes back and tries to figure out in 30 seconds, a better move. Now I played it a few times in the solo mode. And yeah, my logical was generally better, Mm -hmm. but I felt also more and more that I played my intuitive got better. I improved my, um, quick thinking, honing and accelerating my, my, my thinking speed as it were. So that's yeah. why it's a brain game for uh, people who want to train up their intuitive uh, in solo mode.
0: Sounds like a great way to kind of exercise the brain too, right? Like I look at someone like my father who, uh, you know, taught me chess when I was very, very young and uh, you know, played it my whole life. Stop playing it again. Cause of the time, right. You know, sitting down for a game for, an hour and a half just a uh, game of chess uh, was just something that a lot of people don't do now um, and that was kind of the way it was done back when I learned um, mm-hmm. a timer certainly helps I guess speed things up um, but someone like that who's starting to age and uh, needs exercise or brain maybe lives on their own or, or, or needs something to kind of keep themselves stimulated he does a lot of online chess but something like this would I think uh, really helps me like him as well kind of uh, get back into the, uh, you know, the, the brain challenge of it. The,
1: the brain gym, <laughs> the brain
0: gym. Yeah. It's a better way to put it. Actually brain gym is the exact exactly what I was trying to say. So what I'm, what I want to get my head around though, is in the solo variant, are you like, are you, are you playing to win? Like, are you trying to get one color versus the other? Like I'm, I'm trying to get my head around that. How does that work? How does the solo variant? like I understand the two sides. So one side's playing like say red, I think it's a red and yellow, right? And the other one's playing the other color. Um, and it's the same rules you would have if you're playing, you know, against a person, I mean, you're playing against yourself. So you always win, or is it based on trying to get one color versus the other? Walk us through that.
1: Well, certainly you as a player will always win a solo game. (laughs) (laughs) Which, (laughs) Which side of your brain is actually winning. So you're playing your left brain against your right brain in this situation. So you're trying to outdo
0: yourself, is that what you're trying to do? So on the one side you're like, okay, I want uh, get as many black as I, or as many like red as I can, and then the other side I'm trying to get as many yellow. Wouldn't your brain automatically lean towards a positive outcome on one side or the other, or is that the whole point? Is that this the way the Dr. Braun has structured these timers? It kind of almost forces a separation uh, in your brain's thinking ability and actually creates almost two thinking machines.
1: If you have longer, more time to look at a problem, come up with a strategy to solve that problem, you're gonna have time to analyze. You're gonna have time to consider different options. So from that, even if you consider three different options, you're gonna pick the best one. Mm -hmm. That is analytical decision-making. If you don't have the time, you just gotta go I think this one's the right one. It looks right to me. I'm making this decision now, Boom, done. So yeah, you're trying to hone and sharpen your intuitive decision-making, the emotional intelligence in you, which actually we use more than we do our logical decision-making on a daily basis, but you're trying to exercise it, um, kind of cognitive exercise, if you will.
0: Yeah. And then the decision to do the two-player and solo versus, like the, for lack of a better word, pimped-out version, which is the the C tour, which gets into teams and all this other kind of stuff. What was the decision on your end to, to do that? Was it to then plan maybe a sequel, where then you have the, you know, the, the larger version, or where were you going with that? Yeah,
1: we wanted a game that was uh, inexpensive to produce and uh, low price to buy. Uh, we wanted a game that would also be Uh, very playable and acceptable into families, Mm -hmm. casual gamers would get introduced to it. When you go through the rules, you'll notice that, yeah, there's actually four operations, but really we encourage you to just start with the basic game of laying two pieces and flipping, Mm -hmm. just start that way and build your way up to the more advanced form of the game. And uh, so for that reason, team playing didn't seem to match up with uh, the target market that we were looking for. Yeah,
0: gotcha. And then talk to me a little bit about the components. So the the rings themselves, uh, are those are they punch outs or or what are the rings made of?
1: Yeah, Um, two, two and a half millimeter punch outs, we'd like to actually go to three because they would be super nice and easy to flip over and tangibly nicer. And I think that's uh, that's very possible that we would do that, rather. We looked into uh, kind of the Azul um, plastic like tiles, yeah. pieces or even Othello has those plastic black and white, right? Yeah. That's nice, but it is a lot more costly. So oh, if yeah. we ever want to get there, that means a different price point, that means a different game really and different production. Um, so for now, uh, punch boards and they look like little donuts. Yeah, <laughs> little, they do. Little <laughs> lifesavers, don't they? <laughs> you you <laughs> get hungry away playing the
0: game. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Edible, edible game.
0: Yeah. And, and in terms of uh getting uh getting this out, getting the message out, um has there been uh like have you approached schools? I know right now if, with the lockdowns and things like that, it's it's very difficult to uh really reach out to anybody other than uh, virtually um, what is that part of kind of the go forward plan to try to get this kind of baked into some schools and get kids putting their electronics down and, and get them thinking strategy.
1: Uh, Dr. Braun actually has done that with his C tour game. Yes. And mm-hmm. he has, uh, sponsored and hosted championships in which, uh, schools came together and played and won prizes, um but we have not been able to obviously approach schools in the last yeah. year and a half. So you're right. It's been a real bummer from that point of view.
0: Yeah. It's been kind of crazy. What are some of the other things you've done or you're planning to do? Um, again, when I think of a game like this, which I per- I've i personally backed it, just I'll put that out there too. I've personally backed this game because <laughs> I, I like, the, I like these kind of games, so I can't wait to get my copy. Um, but the, you know, I look at an abstract game and then I look at the Kickstarter environment, which is loaded with plastic crack, right? Like the minis is loaded with, um, you know, a lot of character art. Now we're starting to see a lot more like card games with character art, you know, stories and things like that. How do you kind of pull yourself, uh, you know, away from that pack and, and get to people uh, with an abstract game, given that it seems to be leaning that way?
1: hmm So let me start off first of all by uh, telling you that all games are abstract. Every, <laughs> game, every game ever <laughs> created is abstract by definition, right? Yeah. It just depends on whether it's got a theme to it or what the decoration is, but they're all abstract ultimately. True. Now, if you could imagine that there are degrees of abstraction, well sure there are, right? And ours is a very high degree abstract game, but there is a huge core of people who just love abstract games. And when they heard about our game coming out, Taurus, they got in touch with us. They messaged us and said, finally, an abstract game. This looks really amazing. I'm backing it. I like it. I can't wait to you know play this. Mm-hmm. It is a smaller market segment, but it is a, a very hardcore and uh, underserved uh, market segment that feels you know we want more abstract games actually so that's my answer to the abstract yeah. nature of it the,
0: I, I certainly uh, think um, uh, tournament-based games I, I, I like right so that, that's kind of in my wheelhouse and uh, you know people that know me know that you know my co-designer uh, on a lot of our games is my brother and uh, he and I are very competitive with each other so typically if we're playing a game and it could be something as simple as monopoly deal, right. But we will play usually three, four, five, seven games. Cause you constantly have that. Okay. Let's do like a best of three or let's do a best of five. And, you know, I think that for me, it's refreshing to see games in, in the ecosphere of game. Cause there's a lot of games out there and there's something for everybody, but it's great to see, uh, new games like this, right? New, I'm going to call it abstract because that's the category it fall under, but like new abstract type games don't come along very often. And certainly one that, uh, has, uh, the, um, the science, uh, behind it that this does, you know, Dr. Braun, um, you know, certainly the, uh, you know, Russia is very well known for chess, and, uh, you know, I think that's a testament to you know culturally the types of games that, uh, that kind of are birthed in that country. And I, I think this one's going to be awesome. I can't uh, can't wait to see it. So um, where, where are you going from here? Like you are a publisher. It seems like you're cranking out a different game every couple of months. But is there something else you have coming down the pipe or what's next on uh, on the docket for you?
1: We always have about four or five games in the pipeline in various stages of development. Um, We um, have slowed down a bit lately because it's impossible to do playtesting of a nature that we want. So the playtesting that we like to do is to see how people are interacting with each other and with the game, not necessarily just to see if the game works or broken or something like that, right? That's really critical. But Yacht Race is still on our docket as a game that is awesome and it is a republication as well, like Taurus actually, back in the 1960s uh, that we've just updated, upgraded. And then uh, a local uh, Toronto game designer uh, has a lovely little game, there are fish involved. Imagine Stratego, but there are fish. So the smallest <laughs> fish can <laughs> kill the biggest fish by poisoning it. And then there are certain other fish that are just small, but worth more, so you've got to protect them more. So you're developing the school on a hexagon. Uh, sorry, on these, the, these hex spaces. Oh, that's cool. And trying to um, be the one who prevails. The deeper you go in the water, those are m- worth more hex uh, points, as it were, too. So that's another one that we have coming. And then, yeah few others that are one super secret one but i'm very excited <laughs> about it because it involves a uh, very famous game designer from europe oh so, wow yeah we hope
0: that's exciting <laughs> and and so your next game is coming when is uh, have you set a timeline for that yet like is or is this like a fall launch or we're talking like maybe next winter or kind of what's the schedule
1: can probably go in the fall yeah got it Ready, all the art is pretty much done. Uh, it's good, and it doesn't need to be play tested. It works, you know. Yeah. So that's that can go anytime, and then uh, the fish one, big fish, small fish, is its working title for now. Could then go early in the year next year.
0: oh that's cool. Richard it is always awesome having you on the podcast. I learn something new every single time. Wish you all the best with Taurus. I can't wait to get my copy, and you take care.
1: You too. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Cheers.
0: This has been an episode of the board game binge podcast hosted by James Staley produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group board game binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.